Well, Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Good to have you with us. Start out the year right. I was reading about a pastor this week who uh, started an organization he calls uh, Pastors for Trump. He says he has chapters in all 50 states, and obviously it is his goal to build upon that start and eventually get Trump back in the White House. He calls himself a Christian nationalist. Now, uh, I am a Christian and I am a nationalist. I consider myself to be a national at least, largely because I know the Antichrist is going to be a globalist as opposed to a nationalist. And although I am a Christian and a nationalist, I am in no way a Christian nationalist. At that point, Christian becomes an adjective. There is nothing on par with being a Christian. My politics is a hobby. For some, it may be a vocation or an avocation. We are told to be in the world, but not of the world. Unfortunately, it would seem, especially in the area of politics, that the world tends to influence us more than we influence politics. We use or refer our own Ryan Kirby, for example. He served four terms as his state representative. And I don't doubt anyone was more effective as a lawmaker, worked any harder, or had a more positive Christian influence than what he did. Yet his constituents did not re-elect him, thankfully. The best people do not usually wind up on the top when it comes to politics. I understand what the pastor wants in his Christian nationalist movement. I think he wants what our founding fathers wanted and what in one sense we all would like and that would be life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Some would contend that those are simple basic human rights. However, if you survey the landscape, I think you will find that they are more than a privilege for a favored few. Our friend Tony in China, for example, I'm sure would would love to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, obviously, I've become rather cynical in regards to politics over the last, uh, last this lifetime, and I've lost a lot of faith in the political process. But I've not lost any faith in Christ in the process. I think he is the answer to all of our human needs, all of our human suffering and problems. After all, he is God. He created us. So if he does not hold the key to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life as Jesus said, I came that, that they, us, his sheep, might have life and we might have it abundantly. Are you enjoying the abundant life? If so, keep doing what you're doing. If not, life is to be found in Jesus. Not in our Constitution, but in our Bible. In John 1, verses 3 and 4, John writes, Through Jesus all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Life and light. We look to our institutions, our government, our corporations, our justice department, news, even the church, 
but they are incapable of doing for us what only Christ can bring about. Christ is life and he is light. And today we're going to resume our series in Corinthians after a five-week break for Advent. Previously, we were in Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul talked about the fact that he has freedom. He enjoys freedom in Christ, but he will not, he refuses to use that freedom in a way that will cause someone else to stumble. And so today we come to Corinthians chapter 9, and although it mentions nothing about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, or even the abundant life, I think Paul describes a philosophy of ministry or a way of life and freedom in this chapter that is as close to the abundant life as I know. And there are three qualities that he shares, philosophies of his life, I think, that I think also are qualities necessary for us to experience that freedom in Christ, the abundant life, or even the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And the first quality is, is we need to have self-imposed limits. Self-imposed limits. And you might write there, freedom equals love, which equals obedience. And we'll comment a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 1 through 12. Am I not free? Paul starts out by saying. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who said in judgment on me. You see, there were some who were going around saying, well, Paul is really not a legitimate, full-fledged, five-star apostle. He, he wasn't one of the original disciples. He came around later. He didn't see Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus. You don't really have to listen to what he says. But Paul is defending that and explaining why, why, where they are wrong. Do not we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for our living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If, you have sown, if we have sown a spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we do not use this right. But we do not use this right. So the situation here is that the church is in its infancy. There is no New Testament. There's no Bible to go to to say, how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves? 
There's very little scripture at this time outside the Old Testament. It is being written at this time, actually. And as he is speaking these words, it's being written down as scripture for us today. So how people learned about Christ and about the church and how to behave and what to believe came directly from the apostles as they traveled around from church to church and house to house and taught the people directly. It would be like this morning, maybe this group would actually be meeting in two or three different homes in different locations. And perhaps uh, Peter and his wife were in town, and so they'd come over and they'd visit in one house, and they'd have a time of teaching and a time of fellowship, and then uh, they'd send him on their way, and they'd give him a gift of some money to support him so that he could go to the next place, and he could continue doing this. And then we'd have a, another apostle, perhaps a few weeks later, that would come through and would do a similar kind of thing. It appears that they usually traveled with their wives, as I said, from church to church and house to house, teaching the gospel. Furthermore, it appears they were supported financially by the churches they visited and the home churches, the house churches. Pastors and elders were just coming on the scene. Local church did not necessarily have a pastor at this time because Paul was born later than most of the other disciples. He was not one of the original 12 disciples. Some did not think he was an apostle at all. And in verse 2, he says, Surely I am a, an apostle to you. After all, he had introduced the Corinthians to Christ. And he goes on to argue his case that, that uh, he's seen Christ. He saw him on the road to Damascus. And in addition to that, he writes that there was at least one other occasion where he was picked up into the heavenlies. He was transported into the heavenlies where he spoke with the Lord. Now, whether it was a vision or whether he was actually there, he's really not even sure. In fact, he saw things that he can't even speak to us about. So although he was not an apostle in the same sense as the original ones, he certainly was one every bit as legitimate, and uh, especially to the Corinthians and to the, and to the Gentiles. So he's writing them. And so what's he, what's he writing them about? Does he want money here? Is he asking them, you should be supporting me like you support everybody else? Aren't we entitled to that? Well, everybody wants money, you know. But Paul says, we would rather, we would rather put up with anything rather than take money from you and in doing so hinder the gospel. Verse 12, if others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We do not achieve greatness or receive all of the richness that Christ would have for us without giving up some of our rights. And maybe even some cases all of our rights. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, put aside the pleasantries of life and do the difficult things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now, I know that doesn't sound like freedom, to obey somebody. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey me. Over in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. 
Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. He said that in verse, he said that in chapter 15, in chapter 14, verse 15, he said, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey what I command. The test of our love for Christ, do we love what he commands? And when you think of this, don't think of the Ten Commandments and the law. Think of the, he said, I give you a new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Love is the new commandment. We spoke about that a couple weeks ago. We'll speak about it again in a few more weeks, that love is, is not just that romantic love between a man and a woman, but love is patient. Love is kind. And it goes through that whole list. So he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I've commanded you to love one another. And he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, is, it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and I will show myself to him. Jesus wants to show himself to you just like he walked amongst the apostles, just like he revealed himself to Paul. He shows himself to us as well as we love him through obedience. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him. We will come to him. We will make our home with him. I don't know if you've seen Jesus and the Father, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit will show themselves to you, but obedience is the prerequisite or the condition. We will not find life and liberty and happiness. We will not find the abundant life. We will not be free if we won't obey his commands. I know that's asking a lot. Yes, it is. I was sharing in our earlier service about a young man that Ryan and I coached in basketball for several years. And after he graduated from high school, and he used to live right across from, the, lived right across from our old church building for a while, he was uh, having a very difficult time, called me one night, asking me to come over and talk to him. And I presented the gospel to him. He had been in our youth group. He had been around church. His parents had been in church. But he didn't really understand the gospel. And I shared it very clearly with him. And he said, what you're asking me to do is give control of my life over to Jesus. You're asking me to give control of my life over to someone else, to give up my freedom. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I am asking you to do. And he said, I cannot do that. It wasn't a half a dozen years later, but when he was in prison, he'd given up all of his freedom, trying to hold on to all of his freedom. Jesus is asking a lot, but the return is so much more. It's going to cost us something. We cannot do it 
cannot have it both ways. We cannot do it our own way. Jesus said we had to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We have to set some limits to our freedom in order to serve Jesus more fully. Paul had to let go of some of his rights. He had to lose his life to gain life. He had to give up the idea of being able to be paid by the Corinthians, being able to be supported like all the other apostles in order to advance the cause of Christ. He surrendered his rights even as an apostle. He did not do this so he might earn his salvation. Salvation was already bought and paid for by Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 9. So the first thing we need to do is impose some self-limits. Obey and that will lead to our freedom. 1 Corinthians 9, back to verse 15. But I've not used any of these rights, Paul says. Uh, let me go back to second part of verse 12. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. I'm not writing this in the hope that you will, you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. In verse 17, he uses the phrase discharging the trust committed to him. And that's number two. We need to discharge the trust committed to us. And here freedom equals service to others. Right here is where life really gets special. This is the key to the abundant life, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and true freedom. Paul has discovered that Christ is life and light and he's living in him just as he does in each of us who've been born again. When you find your meaning in Christ, you found the key to life. And then just like Paul, we've been given a trust. You've been given a trust. If you have Christ, that trust is sharing Christ, living in Christ, trusting in Christ. And Paul says, when I'm doing that, whether... They appreciate it and pay me or not for preaching. It doesn't matter. He said, in fact, it would be, I would be miserable if I couldn't preach. I have to preach, he says. I understand how he feels. I remember that feeling when I first experienced it and still have that feeling. That's why I'm not looking to retire anytime soon. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't serve others. You have a trust. Perhaps it's a spouse or a child or children or grown children or a family member or a relative or an elderly parent or a neighbor or a stranger. You have a ministry. You have a spiritual gift. 
It may be helping and serving or giving. Paul's trust happened to be preaching the gospel with or without compensation. Our trust is probably something different. But when you find it, you will find the meaning of life for you. You will find life and you will find freedom and you will learn to live in light. How did Paul discharge this trust? What did that look like? Verse 19, though I am free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all means possible I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. He does this. He becomes all things to all men. He's interested in what other men are interested in, all men. Democrats and Republicans and black and white and athletes and non-athletes and computer people and, and the whole range, everybody. I try to, he tries to have a conversation with them. He tries to understand them. He tries to meet them on their level so that he might impart the gospel to them and ultimately that he may share in the blessing of the gospel. The angels in heaven are singing and rejoicing over one soul that is saved. What do you suppose the blessings are for those who work for the sake of the gospel? Well, many, many intrinsic blessings for sure. The peace and the joy, love, peace, joy, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all of the fruit of the Spirit for sure. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like there's anything you can do. But when we get to that point, we can always pray. Surely you can do that. Ryan shared with me a text last night. We'll see if it works this time. Okay, he had, uh, one of the missionaries we support here is uh, Hannah Lingle. And we recently gave her a gift uh, at Christmas time of $2,000 and a couple hundred dollars a month. She's working in, uh, in Africa as one of, our, one of our missionaries. One of the many missionaries that as you give a tithe here, as you give some money here, some of that money goes all literally around the world to different, different individuals. Hannah Lingle is a granddaughter of Dorothy Wiebe, and uh, her mother was in our youth group here uh, as she grew up. And uh, now she, is she uh, Hannah, has gone out on the mission field. And so when she found out that she was receiving this gift, she said, wow, thank you so much. That's incredible. She says, I'm always so blessed and humbled and grateful for the partnership and generosity of the church. God is doing amazing things all over the world through your church. Thank you and the church for continued partnership. May God continue to bless the church and those in it. That's one of the, one of the blessings of the gospel. That's one of the blessings of sharing the gospel. Maybe you have, maybe you have money that you, can, that you can give. Maybe you have money that you can give to the building project. 
Maybe you don't have any money, but you can volunteer. I've literally been talking to people all over the country and, uh, and inviting them to come and help when the building begins. Maybe you can't build, but you can cook. There will be an army of, of workers out here at, uh, on some days and at some point in time. Maybe you can help do that. Maybe you can't teach, but maybe you can babysit. The list is endless. There is a trust that is committed to us as a church. There is a trust that is committed to you as an individual. And the key to happiness and life is in fulfilling that trust. I've counseled with Christian addicts at different times, some who were addicted to prescription drugs and some otherwise. And one thing that uh, is common, that I hear common from them, and I haven't dealt with that many, but, but enough of them, one thing that they miss the most and enjoyed the most and miss the most and would like to get back to is working with children. There was such a natural blessing that came as they, as they remember ministering to children and almost are desperate to get back to doing it because there is an intrinsic blessing. There's a blessing that comes to them as they, they recognize it as they serve. And I suppose it's because of the, the stark contrast between the, the emptiness of their addiction and, and the, simple, the simple blessing of, uh, of serving, the blessing of being able to serve. That's just one of the infinite number of blessings of the gospel. Paul wanted to preach. He had to preach because he was addicted to the blessings. He was addicted to the relationship with God. He was driven and motivated to obey Jesus Christ. Let's continue in verse 24. Now he kind of shifts gears here. And you're kind of going, what's this all about? He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have pre preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Number three is never lose sight of the prize. And you might write beside that, freedom equals persistence, or fortitude. Never lose sight of the prize. Freedom equals persistence or fortitude. Winston Churchill was asked to give a speech at a commencement exercise on many occasions, but one in particular, he walked up to the podium and said, never, 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 never quit. And he went back and sat down. That's what Paul is saying in these last few verses here. He, he sees the athletes train. He's seen the Olympians train. He's seen the, uh, the games that were here, played here in Corinth, second only to the uh, Olympic Games. And, he's, and, and he appreciates what the athletes do and, and how, how focused they are and how disciplined they are. But he also recognizes that what we're after is not an earthly prize. What we're after is not money. But it is a prize that literally will last forever. 
William Barclay said, life is a battle. As William James put it, if this life is not a real battle in which something is eternally gained for the universe by success, it is not better than a game of private theatricals from which one may withdraw at will. But it feels like a fight. Doesn't it feel like a fight? As if there were something really wild in the universe which we, with all of our ide ideologies and faithfulness, and idealities are needed to redeem. As Coleridge had it, so far from the world being a goddess in petticoats, it is rather a devil in a straight waistcoat. A flabby soldier cannot win battles. A slack trainer cannot win races. We must regard ourselves always as men engaged upon campaign, as men pressing onwards towards a goal. To win the fight, and to be victorious in the race demands discipline. We have to discipline our bodies. It is one of the neglected facts of the spiritual life that very often spiritual depression springs from nothing else than physical unfitness. If a man is going to do his best work in anything, he must bring to it a body that is as fit as he can make it. And I would propose to you that if you look at the example of Tom Brady in the NFL, you will see that example played out in secular, on the secular side at least. But Paul is saying we need to be that committed on the spiritual side. William Barclay goes on to say we need to know our goal. A distressing thing is the obvious aimlessness of the lives of so many people. They're drifting anywhere instead of going somewhere. Martin Martins has a parable. There was a man once, a satirist, in the natural course of time, his friends slew him and he died. And the people came and stood around about his corpse. And they commented, he treated the whole world as his football, they said indignantly, and he kicked it. And the dead man opened one eye, but, he said, always towards the goal. Someone once drew a cartoon showing two men on Mars looking down at the people in this world scurrying around here and there and everywhere. One said to the other, what are they doing? The other replied, they are going. But said the first, where are they going? Oh, said the other, they are not going anywhere, they're just going. And to go just anywhere is a certain way to arrive nowhere. We need to know the worth of our goal. We need to know the worth of our goal in 2023. The great appeal of Jesus was rarely based on penalty and punishment. It was based on the declaration, look what you're missing if you do not take my way. The goal is life, and surely it is worth anything to win that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these tremendous examples. We're going to speak about examples next week. But, Father, thank you for the example of Paul and of how focused he was and how he was willing to lay down his own rights and how he was willing to obey you and in obeying you, how he was willing to serve others and thereby getting your word into our hands. Father, help us today as we begin a new year 
as we step out into 2023. And if 2022 taught us anything, and the year before that, and the year before that, it taught us that life is uncertain. We really do not know what lies ahead of us. But we, we, we have a goal, and that goal is to know you and to serve you and to love you and to obey you and to live for you. And Lord, we ask for your, your strength and we ask for your blessings and we ask for your wisdom and we ask for your direction. And Father, we thank you and we love you and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.